Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the aquarium. I'm Jerry Schubel, president of the aquarium. It's great to have all of you who are here in person. And I also want to welcome all of those who are watching remotely. I would request that those of you who are in the theater, please turn your cell phones off or put them on vibrate and refrain from texting for the next hour. Tonight, it's a real pleasure to have with us Dr. Drew Lohrer. Grew up here in Palos Verdes. His parents are here this evening. They're charter members of this aquarium. His sister, Betsy, is here. His brother, Bill, and one of his three sons, Ty, is with us this evening. And I think there are a number of their neighbors from the uh, Palos Verdes who, uh, who are here also. We welcome all of you. <coughs> Drew is going to talk to us about a 2017 expedition to the Antarctica to study what the life under the ice and how climate change is affecting marine biodiversity along the Antarctic coastline. He, as I say, he grew up here. He got his bachelor's degree at UC San Diego, and he got his PhD at the University of Connecticut, just across Long Island Sound from where I spent 20 years at the University of, of Stony Brook. He's the principal marine ecologist at the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research in New Zealand. He leads estuarine and coastal research projects in New Zealand and has made seven trips to the Antarctic to investigate factors affecting coastal seafloor biodiversity under the ice and how that life there functions. He led, as I said, the 2017 expedition and it involved weeks of camping and diving under thick ice at one of the world's southernmost accessible dive sites. As he was growing up, he used to come to this aquarium. I like to think we stimulated his interest in marine science. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Drew Lohrer. Hear me all right? Oh, that sounds good. Sorry, my uh, microphone fell out of my pocket straight away. <laughs> so yeah, thank you very much for coming uh, to hear me speak today. Um, I'm going to be talking about um, the work we've done down in the Antarctic, studying um, the resilience or the vulnerability of Antarctic um, organisms and ecosystems to climate-related changes. And um, this work is funded by the New Zealand Antarctic Research Institute. Um, and it's supported by logistical, logistic support by um, uh, Antarctica New Zealand. So the project is collaborative between the University of Waikato and NIWA. Um, so NIWA is the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research. And that's where I work in, in Hamilton, New Zealand. <clears throat> um, so the project that I'm going to talk about has um, several components. It actually has a, a land-based or terrestrial component, freshwater component, and a marine component. The part I'm going to be talking about, we've sort of dubbed um, science under the ice, and sort of a shameless plug here. But if, if you, we have a Facebook page, and if you um, type in science under the ice, or if you just go onto YouTube and type Drew Lohrer, you'll see some of our work. Um, we've got lots of posts from the field and um, sort of in-depth discussions about what we're doing 
um, under the ice and why we, we go downtown, down to the Antarctic. I'd also like to acknowledge that this work is, is done um, in collaboration with uh, investigators from the University of Auckland, um, the University of Helsinki, um, and again, can't um, thank enough the Antarctica New Zealand for the logistical support and the funding from the New Zealand Antarctic Research Institute. <clears throat> so I guess um, first thing to get started, not sure how familiar all of you are in the audience today with Antarctica, um, but Antarctica, um, it's not a floating bit of ice down at the southern part of the world. It is actually a continent, so that's the continental land mass of Antarctica. Um, and just a few facts about Antarctica as a continent it is um, the driest continent, um, the coldest, the windiest, and the highest elevation. So people don't realize how, how high average elevation is in Antarctica, but the pole is somewhere around 3,800 meters above sea level, so it's quite high. Um, and it's about twice the size of Australia, um, so it's quite a big continent. And you can see New Zealand up at the top, so the National Institute of Water and Mat Atmospheric Research, that's where I work in New Zealand. I've been there since 2002, um, even though I grew up here in Southern California. So basically, I guess just starting off um, with a couple basics about why we bother going down there. So why do greenhouse gas emissions matter? It's kind of a, um, a question on a lot of people's minds these days. And I guess the short answer is um, planetary warming um, and sea level rise uh, are the two big things. Obviously, there's lots of um, stuff going on in California right now with the wildfires and um, different things like that. But essentially, um, because of the greenhouse gas emissions, um, we're getting planetary warming. That's leading to the thermal expansion of the oceans, um, and the sea level is actually going up. The um, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere passed 400 parts per million um, for the first time in human history. Um, the last time it was that high was about three million years ago, and, and the sea level was about, uh, the planet was about two to three degrees Celsius warmer than it is today, and sea level was about um, 20 meters or 60 feet higher than it was today. So um, there's some big things to, to be concerned about with greenhouse gas emissions. Another one is declining seawater pH. So we put all this carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it changes the acidity of the ocean, um, and that's something that affects marine organisms. Um, why does Antarctica matter? Well, 70% of the world's fresh water is locked up on um, Antarctica's land-based ice sheets. And obviously, um, when you have the land-based ice melting, that's one of the major contributors to sea level rise. So we're quite worried about the West Antarctic ice sheet and other um, land-based ice masses melting. Antarctica is also really important in terms of global ocean circulation. So um, the freezing of, of, of water, the um, sea ice formation, um, basically you get sinking water and that drives the global pattern of global ocean circulation and the distribution of heat around the planet. So the Antarctic is very important for that. Um, also, Antarctic science generally is very important. We know a lot about past climate history and the concentrations of CO2 in our atmosphere over um, periods long before humans existed. We know about that because of coring through um, Antarctic ice and analyzing the, the gas in, in little bubbles. Um, Antarctic science is also um, really important um, in terms of 
if you study the organisms there, those are at their thermal extremes. And if we, they're, they're going to be one of the first organisms affected by um, warming. And also in the Antarctic, with the CO2 in the atmosphere, um, the acidification problem is happening most um, prominently, most quickly in polar seas because they're so cold. There's high solubility of CO2. And so we're getting a lot of these problems are, are really happening in Antarctica first. Antarctica is a bellwether for change elsewhere on the planet. But I guess the reason that I am passionate about Antarctica uh, is because of the fantastic organisms that we see down there underneath the ice. Um, people think of Antarctica as a, a white continent, icy um, and kind of barren. And in some ways that's true on the land. Um, there's very little land that's not covered by ice. But underneath the, the uh, ocean, you get incredible diversity of organisms, colors, um, sizes, and really unique fauna. And I think this is really important to preserve. Just a few more examples of the types of things we see down there. Um, these are a variety of sponge um, and uh, other types of invertebrate communities living on the seafloor. <clears throat> That's a large um, anemone. Um, I guess the other thing that's kind of impressive is that it's not just a diversity of life, but um, you get really high abundances, large biomass of these organisms. So you, you know, literally piles of organisms in certain places. Um, you also get some extreme types of organisms. So this is a nemertine worm. Um, we sometimes get nemertine worms in our samples, but we, we see them through a microscope. Down in the Antarctic, they can be a meter long. And this is an Antarctic scallop. So again, sometimes we see extremely high um, densities of these Antarctic scallops. Um, but from what we understand from their um, shell formation is that they can live to be 100 years old. So they um, slow growing, um, very thin shelled, but they can persist for a very long time. If you can actually see the little eye spots on the southern rim of the shell there. <clears throat> this is a pycnogonid. Um, sea spider, so you may not even knew that there were sea spiders um, in the water. This is a pycnogonid. And again, often these are microscopic, but in the Antarctic, this is about the size of a dinner plate, so it's quite large. Polychaete worms, one of my favorite, um, just because of the beautiful, um, you know, delicate uh, fan worm there, fan. And uh, uh, this is a type of nudibranch, so it's about, um, well, that's a scallop shell that it's sitting on. So. Um, kind of an interesting organism. So all of those previous slides all came from different phyla. So this is extreme diversity even at the highest levels. Okay, so that's why I'm passionate about going down there and I think it's important to protect these organisms. We want to understand why they're changing um, and what's driving that change. Um, now I'm going to tell you a little bit just about logistically how we get down there because um, I often get questions about this. So I'm from Hamilton, New Zealand. We fly down to Christchurch, and then we fly down to the Antarctic. So we're not taking a boat across that would take um, quite a while, and it can be quite wavy. Um, we actually get a pretty easy um, five, five and a half hour flight. Um, this is what we fly in. So it's a US um, military aircraft, a C-17. Um, it's called a Globemaster. So they pack you in like sardines, um, and actually, the the first half of the plane is passengers 
and beyond that is big stacks of cargo. So there's a lot in that, in that airplane. Um, and then the plane lands um, on the sea ice. Um, so there's an ice runway, and it's a pretty impressive sized airplane um, to be flying in. <coughs> so New Zealand um, has a, a, a base, which is basically a staging area for um, Antarctic science of all types. Um, Scott Base, you may have heard of McMurdo Station. Scott Base is literally just over the hill um, from McMurdo Station. Um, you can also see, uh, if you on to the right side of the photograph, you can see the, the wind turbines. So it's run off of um, traditional um, fossil fuels, but increasingly they're using re renewable energies to run the base. This is just a different angle, and you can see Mount Erebus to the right, um, which is the, the southernmost active volcano in the world. You can see the puff of steam coming out the top. And this is just a uh, photograph on a different day, so it's not always pure blue sunny skies. You do get um, crazy cloud formations and, and things. But it's a pretty, pretty amazing place to be. <coughs> um, this is to remind you, because um, this question always comes up. Um, when we arrived there, we arrived in um, October, late October. Um, and this is a picture of the last sunset. So the sun, I think it's around October 23rd or so, the sun um, dips below the horizon, but that's the last time it goes below the horizon for several months. So the entire time we're there, it's 24 hours a day sunlight. And uh, the sun may go behind um, a bluff or a mountain and cast a bit of shadow, but the, basically it's um, bright sky um, 24 hours a day. So this is just a photograph inside Scott Base. Obviously when you have an expedition, so our expedition had nine people. Um, and especially with the cold, you have to eat a lot. So we spend a lot of time, a few days at Scott Base, doing different types of safety training. Um, there's Scott Polar tents are lined up along the back wall, and then we're also kind of gathering together all of our food and stuff um, for this big journey. Um, so we were there for five and a half weeks, and we had nine plus people there on site for that entire duration. So this is just a map showing where Scott Base is relative to the study site at New Harbor that we visited in 2017. So it looks like a relatively straight shot across. Um, but you might wonder how we're going to get there with all that gear, especially given that it's completely frozen. So it's not um, open water. It's solid sea ice at the time that we're, we're there. So we basically we pack everything up into these um, tracked vehicles called Haglands. And we have pull tow behind sleds that are um, basically uh, filled to the gills with all of our gear. So we have camping equipment, uh, we have diving equipment, um, and we have all of our scientific equipment. So any one of those three things uh, is quite gear intensive, but when you put them all together, you just have a ton of stuff. So we actually had two Haglands um, pulling um, similar sleds like this, and we had to uh, helicopter um, gear across as well. See some pretty beautiful sights along the way, though. So this was a, an iceberg that's about 200 feet high or so, halfway. Um, this iceberg was actually a bit problematic, though, because of the way the tides and currents um, flexed around the iceberg. There was constant tide cracks, so um, the people traversing the gear across the sea ice had to be very careful probing these cracks to make sure they're thick enough that we wouldn't be falling through with them. But um, they've got really good um, uh, field trainers that can check all that stuff out before you, you go driving across big cracks in the ice. <clears throat> 
So this is what it looks like when you approach the entrance to New Harbor. Pretty stunning sight. So big mountains to one side. Um, but it's, it's at the mouth of what's called the dry valleys. So they're dry not because of, um, well, it is a lack of precipitation, but they're dry mainly because the wind blows so hard down the valleys that it blows away all the snow. Um, so they, they look like basically um, you see terrestrial soils that don't have, they're not ice covered. <clears throat> and then so we set up our camp at Explorers Cove in, in New Harbor right at the mouth of, of um, uh, you know, right at the mouth of these dry valleys. <clears throat> Again, just to mention that some of our gear uh, had to be helicoptered across. There's always problems with flights and different things, and a lot of our cargo didn't arrive um, at the same time that we did. So we were staging and doing different things and getting things brought to us as we can. Um, so it's, as you can see, it's quite a logistically intensive exercise. So this is kind of a, uh, um, something happened with the slide there, but um, so this is a, um, a, a view from above. Uh, of our camp. So you can see basically we have three s relatively large uh, huts or that are heated tents. Um, one for the divers, so a dive hut. One was for laboratory equipment. Um, one was basically a mess area where we cooked our meals and shared our meals and planned and, and chatted after dinner and stuff. Um, and then sleeping tents and a toilet tent. So the sleeping tents are uh, unheated, um, so you're sleeping out in the cold, but the other three tents do have Heaters. And we have some generators that are available for charging our um, equipment, our cameras, and different things like that. <clears throat> so as I mentioned, you know, it takes quite a lot of food to feed this um, thing. And you, so we set up our camp, sort of set up our little super, supermarket at the back. It's not a problem to keep things cold, obviously. Um, so we usually just left our stuff out. Um, in fact, you have to usually bring stuff in to the heated tent to thaw it out before you can cook it. Um, but yeah, it takes a bit of organization and lots of food, but we can um, eat relatively good quality, you know, frozen vegetables and frozen meats and things like that, um, rather than having to re uh, rely on um, dehydrated food. So it's, it's pretty, pretty good um, living conditions. Um, this is what the um, lab inside of the laboratory tent looks like. So as you can see, lots and lots of gear all piled together. Um, yeah. Jeez, it's so big, it's actually hard for me to, <laughs> to see it. Um, yeah, so it's pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. Um, the, the logistical support that we get to be able to do our science uh, is, is pretty unbelievable. So the next step is, um, you know, setting up camp is a pretty big deal. Um, takes a few days for sure to get everything up and in an order. We also need to prepare the dive site. So the first thing we do is to start chainsawing out big blocks of ice. So we start pulling them out, hauling them out, and they go deeper and deeper. And so the ice at this site is about three and a half meters thick. So that's about 10 feet thick. Um, and you know, as you can see, that person's over his head already in ice. And then we basically drilled through, um, and the, you get a geyser of water coming up, and the sort of the water fills up the hole. And then we melted out just that last little layer of ice. So that's how we make our dive holes. And then we're pretty much ready to go diving. So you fix a ladder to it, and um, away you go. And this is what it looks like as, you're, uh, as someone's coming down the dive hole. And that's what it looks like when you come out um, on the underside of the ice there. So 
at some of the places I've been in the Antarctic, um, where the sea ice is a little bit thinner, you get a real luxurious, real green growth of algae that's growing on the underside of the ice. At this site, because the ice was three and a half meters thick, um, there was not a lot of under ice algae, but you can still see a little bit of green tinge to it. <clears throat> and um, this is just to remind me to tell you um, just how cold the water is. So it's about negative two degrees Celsius. So I think that's about 28 degrees Fahrenheit. So obviously water freezes at 32 Fahrenheit. Um, so because it's salty, it can freeze at a temperature that's below the, the freezing point of normal fresh water. And actually, you can see in this photograph, there's ice crystals forming on the seabed. So that's called anchor ice. And that's a testament to just how cold the water is. It's actually super cold. It's as cold as it can be without being frozen. Um, and so that's up in the shallows where that anchor ice forms. Anchor ice is a bit unusual because ice usually forms at the surface. Um, but this anchor ice, when it gets thick enough, it can start to float up and take some of these animals <laughs> up with them up to the surface. So despite the cold, um, the divers come up and they're often reasonably happy. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a really amazing place to dive. And I'll show you some photographs toward the end of the talk and you'll see, you'll see what I'm talking about. One of the most amazing things about it is just how crystal clear the water is at the time we go. So you can see for hundreds of meters underwater. And the sea life, as I mentioned, is, is bright, vibrant, and really, really colorful. And it's, it's, um, it's really a sight to behold. <clears throat> so just kind of now getting into the guts of, of um, why we go there. And also a little background on why, in particular, we went to New Harbor. And I guess so this is just a bit of a background. So over the last um, seven or so visits, and in fact, even my colleagues started going down to the Antarctic in 2001. And we, we tried to go to sites for a variety of reasons. And the sites that are shown on the map to the right, um, it's Cape Evans to, to the right-hand side, New Harbor, which is the one I'll talk about a little bit later in the talk, and Granite Harbor, a bit further north. The reason we chose these sites is because they have very big differences in food supply. So one of the big predictions for climate-related change in the Antarctic is that um, basically productivity of the ocean, the food supply, is predicted to increase slightly. So there's a couple reasons for that. Mainly that the phytoplankton is dominated by diatoms, and the algae that grows on the underside of the sea ice is dominated by diatoms. Those are algae that um, take up carbon dioxide and photosynthesize. Those, so they're fixing that carbon. And so when you, you've got elevated atmospheric um, carbon dioxide concentrations and more carbon dioxide is dissolving in the seawater, these plants actually may be more productive. The other reason why food supply might increase with climate-related changes is because if, if it's warming up and the sea ice is getting thinner or the sea ice is, is breaking out, the sunlight can penetrate through and stimulate the growth of these, these photosynthetic organisms. So they require sunlight to photosynthesize, and the loss of sea ice will increase the amount of light. So food is thought to, is one of the big predictions, is that food supply will increase um, around the Antarctic. And the other thing we've noticed from our work is that food is a very key driver of a lot of different processes. So Cape Evans is a very food-rich site. And the main reason for this is that the, 
prevailing currents come down from the north of Ross Island, from areas of open water where there's high phytoplankton growth, whereas New Harbor, the, the currents are coming out from underneath the McMurdo Ice Shelf, which is 500 meters thick, and the water is, is super cold and inky black, and there's basically no food in it. So New Harbor is a, traditionally a very food-poor site, and then Granite Harbor is sort of in between. So one of the reasons we study sites that have different levels of food input is that we can basically understand what will happen over time if food supply increases. So what we're basically doing is substituting space for time. So if we look at these sites that have different levels of food input, we can predict how a site like New Harbor might change if food supply increases. Just an example of this. So if you look on the left side here, the chlorophyll A content, so that's algal pigment, basically. So it's a, it's a tracer for the food supply. The Cape Evans has about two orders of magnitude more food in its sediment than New Harbor did. So this is data from um, back in 2009 and, and um, 2010. So quite a bit more food at Cape Evans than Granite Harbor. Interestingly, this translates to the whole ecosystem metabolism. So the oxygen demand is quite a bit higher at Cape Evans than it is at New Harbor. So there's a correlation between food supply and the ecosystem functioning. Similarly with the nutrient regeneration. So the sediments, the food is in this, has fallen down to this um, sediment, and the microbes and things are regenerating, uh, they're remineralizing that food um, and turning it back into inorganic nutrients that the plants can use. And the rates of that um, are correlated with this food supply. So as I mentioned, Food is quite an important driver of ecosystem function in the Antarctic. But the cool thing about going to New Harbor, why did we go to New Harbor in 2017? So traditionally, this was a very food poor site, as I mentioned. So part of the reason for this, as I mentioned, is that it has to do with sea ice. So if you look at um, this figure, so th there was basically the sea ice breaks out every year over on the Cape Evans side, so zone one. But in the side with New Harbor, there was a period between, it's actually extended back from like 1999 or so, all the way out to 2009, where the sea ice really never broke out at all in zones three or four. And we visited, we made our visit to New Harbor, the, the data I showed on the previous slide, in 2009, right? So after this decade of basically very, very thick ice um, and very limited food supply. However, since 2010, so we had a breakout of the sea ice in zones three and four in 2010, and it's broken out consistently 2014, 2015, 2016, and 2017. So this the amount of sea ice breaking out has really increased in recent years. And we were fortunate to go back to this food poor site in 2017 after this big amount of change. We want to see what would happen, whether there was an injection of food and what that did to the seafloor and the, the functioning of the seafloor. So this is just a satellite image of an example of the breakout. So this is in 2016. And not only did all of McMurdo Sound pretty much break out, you can see the arrow that indicates New Harbor. The sea ice broke out all the way inshore to, to where we were. Um, so 
the very next year, in 2017, um, the sea ice also broke out in, through, all throughout McMurdo Sound. But if you notice, it didn't break out all the way quite far inshore to where our new harbor site was. So notice the date there, that's March 8th of 2017. And we visited in November, okay? So these are just two photographs showing the differences in what the surface of the sea ice looked like in 2009 versus 2017. So in 2009, as I mentioned, the sea ice had been in position for about 10 years. So it was very, very thick. It had these big lumps. In between the lumps, there was thick drifts of snow. And also, because we're at the end of the McMurdo Dry Valleys, uh, there was dust and gravel that had blown out on top of the sea ice. So basically, underneath the sea ice in 2009, it was pitch black. So we were diving around with torches. Whereas in 2017, you can see the surface of the sea ice is a lot smoother. Um, the, the sea ice had really only been in, been in position there for maybe two seasons. It was still three and a half meters thick, which is relatively thick. Um, but there had been breakout several times previously. And as you can see, the sea ice conditions are quite a bit different. <clears throat> so this is a picture of the seafloor at New Harbor in 2009. And these are some experiments that we did. This is how we measure the um, sediment oxygen consumption and the nutrient regeneration. We enclose the seafloor, and we measure the changes in water chemistry over time. But the main thing I want you to just look at is just the seafloor and the fact that there's not a lot of life living on, on top of the sediments. When we returned in 2017, so these are the same chambers. So they're about um, 50 centimeters by 50 centimeters square. Um, that's a diver again for scale. You can see there's quite a bit more life. There's really been an explosion of life on the seafloor in that intervening, intervening period. <clears throat> so the main types of organisms that were um, really um, exploding were ascidians. So this is ascidian. It's a tunicate. So it's like a filter-feeding organism. It sucks water in one siphon and filters it out and shoots it out another siphon. Bryozoans, which are the sort of these lacy um, tree-like things. Um, it's giving a bit of a hug to a starfish there, you can see. <clears throat> um, they're also filter-feeding organisms. And then the final thing was the sponges, so those sort of long pencil-like um, organisms. Those are homaxinellid sponges. Um, they're in this case, they happened to be sitting on top of a, a pencil urchin, a sea urchin. Um, but we saw them all over the seafloor as well. So and again, that's another um, suspension feeding organism. <clears throat> so this is a picture of a uh, burrowing urchin. So similar to the sea urchins that you get here off the rocky coast. But this one is especially adapted for motoring through the, the soft sediments. Um, the main reason I want to show this slide is that you can actually see the kind of brown color. And this is the algal material that's, that's um, come in and settled down to the seafloor um, and is providing the food for these organisms and, and really changing the metabolism of the system. <clears throat> so just, again, not too many data slides, but just um, showing the difference in the food levels in 2009 to 2017. So again, this is the sediment pigment concentration. Um, and in 2009, it was about four times lower than it was in 2017. So in 27, by 2017, there had been a big explosion in this food. And that really changed the sediment oxygen demand. So again, 
the metabolism of the system, all the microbes and the animals had really geared themselves up and were utilizing that food, and that's what um, the sediment oxygen, oxygen demand indicates. So I guess the, the really surprising thing about this is that the theory about the Antarctic is that it's very cold, it's very stable, everything moves very slowly, change is also very slow. Seeing the, the kind of really surprisingly rapid change um, was kind of a new, new thing. There's a, there's a little bit of data um, from other people. So, um, Paul Dayton down at um, UC San Diego has also noticed um, surprisingly rapid shifts, and maybe that's the new paradigm. Things aren't as slow and as stable as we thought. Um, these organisms can respond rapidly if the conditions are right. They may just kind of stay hanging out for a while, and then boom, when conditions come right, they can really uh, up their game, basically. So I guess another question that I, I commonly get asked is, isn't more food and higher diversity a good thing? So this climate-related change, one of the predictions, as I mentioned, is an elevated productivity and you know, more food supply. And we saw that this um, seems to stimulate the organism. Isn't that a good thing? Well, it, it could be. Um, obviously, we like to see these organisms. Um, but there's also a chance that some of the organisms are adapted for, uh, for a low food environment, maybe lost. So some of the really iconic organisms may be lost. And the other thing to remember is that we're only seeing um, an explosion in life in certain types of groups. Um, often you get the opportunistic species coming in first, and then behind that might be something like predators, which could then really affect the food chain. And I guess there's just really a lot of uncertainty about what will happen. The fact that we're seeing change rapidly is important, but uh, we're really not sure what direction it's all going to be going. And, um, it's, it's an amazing place, and I want to see it um, kind of uh, you know, looked after. So yeah, so basically, I just want to conclude by saying um, it, this is really an amazing place. I think we really need to um, look after it well. I think um, it's, it's really never too late to start making some changes to our uh, uh, um, global greenhouse gas emissions. and. Yeah, um, I think, you know, it speaks for itself, really. We need to look after these Antarctic environments. <clears throat> so I just want to say, um, so that, that slide's a bit funny just because um, our event number, so when you go down and you're sort of part of the logistical system that Antarctica New Zealand um, runs, they assign you an event number. Ours was K080. So whenever we're radioing back to Scott Base, we're always um, you know, calling ourselves K080. And uh, anyway, I just want to say thank you to the entire K08, um, K080 event team. As I mentioned, there were nine of us. Seven of us were scientific divers. Um, and also really want to thank Antarctica New Zealand for their support and um, the New Zealand Antarctic Research Institute um, for funding, funding the project. So thank you very much. I'd be happy to ask um, any types of questions that you have. Got one right here. What were your diving depths you were doing there? Depths. 
Yeah. Um, so the, the chamber experiments, so the chambers that we put down, they were about 15 meters, so that's 45, 50 feet. Um, and our maximum depths where we do some of our survey, our transect work, um, was 22 meters, so a little bit, a little bit beyond that, 60, 70 feet. When you're talking about uh, food productivity, mm -hmm. and I'm seeing it locally there, I don't know if you're talking locally or if you're talking this production of plankton, et cetera, is going to be swept by the currents, and you're talking about productivity on a much larger scale in southern oceans, mm -hmm. or because of Antarctica starting all of these currents swirling everywhere, are you talking productivity of food you know, worldwide in oceans? <coughs> So I was looking at the effects of the productivity in, in our local um, area, but that is a, a more of a broader predic prediction um, because of the elevated CO2 in the water and the fact that that's going to elevate the, or su support some of the primary producers. Um, so yeah, I think that is a general um, kind of theory is that the food supply, the, pro the primary productivity could actually increase slightly at the broader scale, certainly at the McMurdo sound scale, but maybe even broader Antarctic or Southern Ocean. Um, first, thank you for what you do. It's greatly appreciated, I think, not just for us, but our children and our children's children. Mm. Um, it's a really um, honorable thing that you're doing. Uh, you mentioned three million years ago the water temperature and perhaps what the water um, level was at its highest or comparable to what it is today. What was the cause of that three million years ago and is there, is there something similar that we can measure against today? Uh, so, um, yeah, so three million years ago was the last time that the CO2 levels um, were at above 400 parts per million and at that time the, the global atmospheric temperature they think was about two to three degrees centigrade um, higher and the sea level was quite a bit higher. I think um, <clears throat> I'm not a climate scientist um, but there is a very good correlation between the CO2 concentrations and the temperatures so I think um, that that's the message there. Post the industrial revolution we've been dumping carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and there's now very good to unequivocal links between anthropogenic or human activities and the, the warming of the planet. Um, if you just go to the IPCC, you know, um, uh, their documents and their predictions and their uh, understanding, they can put with great certainty on some of these um, um, links between uh, greenhouse gas emissions and temperature. So it's just one of those things we really need to um, be worried about. I guess there's also lags. So um, the, the fact that we're at 400 parts per million now, but the sea level isn't 20 feet higher already, sh shows that there's a bit of lag. But it also shows how quickly we have bumped up the CO2 concentration. So yeah, lots to think about. I'm certainly not a, a climate person. Probably shouldn't be answering climate questions, um, but yeah. So that for three million years ago, long before there were any humans, we've only been around for 200,000 to 250,000 years. And probably the high CO2 levels were because of volcanic activity. And as Drew points out, we've, we've, it hasn't been this high for a long time. 
nor it had, and it has never increased as rapidly as it has now in, as a result of human inputs. Other questions or comments? Just one more, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, I noticed in the, in the photographs there were no fish. Are there any at all? Um, or were they just, the light was pushing them away? Yeah, so <clears throat> um, one of the things about New Harbor is that it is a food poor site, or traditionally it's, it's a food poor site. And so there's a little bit less life at New Harbor than some of the other sites I've been at. Nevertheless, at New Harbor and Granite Harbor and Cape Evans, there's always fish at all of the sites. Most of them are very slow moving, um, sort of, we call them benthic fish, so they're demersal. They sort of sit on the seafloor. They're not the kind that you see at Catalina Island swimming around, and um, you don't see a lot of water column fishes. There's a few other fishes that associate with the undersurface of the ice, so the, um, the uh, platelet ice creates a sort of three-dimensional structure, and some of the fish like to kind of hang on that. Um, there, of course, are, if you go further offshore, we're diving, in, relatively speaking, very close to shore. If you go further offshore into deeper water depths, you'll start to get the large Antarctic toothfish and some of these other quite big fish, um, and probably you get pelagic fish as well. Um, but yeah, so we do get fish, um, and they're also quite specialized. They have glycoproteins and antifreeze blood, basically, because it's so cold that otherwise they wouldn't be able to cope with it very well. So say, say a word of the contrast between the Antarctic and the Arctic. Sure. <clears throat> so one of the things about the Arctic, I guess, in recent years that's really alarming people is that the sea ice extent has been shrinking um, really rapidly. Um, and in the Antarctic, that hasn't been the case. Actually, sea ice, in some cases, the aerial extent of it had been extending um, further offshore. And so people were kind of wondering, oh, you know, global climate change isn't really happening. Look at the Antarctic. The sea ice is expanding. But we weren't really tracking the ice mass very well. And also, if there's more glacial melt on land, the water, the salinity of the seawater is going to be slightly fresher, maybe slightly easier to freeze, which is one of the reasons why, why you might be getting um, greater sea ice extent. But in the recent, even the last just couple of years, literally a couple of years, um, the Antarctic sea ice extent has been retreating. And the 2017 was really strange uh, that the sea ice near McMurdo Sound and Scott Base broke out earlier and further than it had in, in a really long time. And we went to Cape Evans at the end of our trip, and the water, the productivity of the water, is usually very clear when we're there in November, but it was actually, the water was a bit murky because the sea ice edge was so close. So there are some things happening in the, in the Antarctic, even in the Ross Sea, that are a bit concerning. The Antarctic Peninsula has, um, which is a totally different part of Antarctica, has had some of the fastest climate um, temperature changes um, of anywhere, really, on the planet. Um, but the Ross Sea has been pretty stable until now. So it's really hard to make generalizations about a place as big as the Antarctic. But at a very fundamental level, as Drew said, the Antarctic is a continent surrounded by ocean, and the Arctic is an ocean surrounded by land masses. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's also part of the, the difference in the governance. The Antarctic. Yeah. Say, say a word about that. Yeah. So, well, I mean, yeah, you said it very well. So, um, yeah, I guess the, the thing about the Antarctic, it is, it is a, clim a continent, and there's so much um, uh, 
ice on the land, that if that melts, that's going to really contribute to um, sea level rise. Um, there's also a lot of um, interesting feedbacks. So when you lose sea ice, um, the, the water is dark and it absorbs sunlight better and absorbs heat better than the, the white ice. And so if you lose a little bit of ice, you get more warming and then you might lose a little bit more ice and it kind of feeds back and accelerates. So there's, there's some problems in, in that regard. And there are no people that live permanently on Antarctic and there are people certainly that live in the Arctic they have for thousands of years. And I think if with the Antarctic, no country has a claim to any of the, the country. And the Arctic is surrounded by countries that are fighting over the resources that are becoming available with the melting of this ice because it's rich in oil, gas, and other minerals. And um, there, so there's almost certainly going to be conflict there. Yeah. So there's an Antarctic treaty. Um, and at the moment, what's supposed to be happening in Antarctica is only research and peace, basically, um, which is pretty cool. Although there's lots of countries that have um, little outposts in Antarctica. You hope that their, um, their uh, you know, intentions are good. So. <clears throat> Let me get you a microphone. So you're talking about the explosion of various sea life in the Antarctic, mm -hmm. but what's the sustainability of that? Yeah. So I mean, yeah, is at some point in time, I mean, resources have to deplete. Mm -hmm. I mean, so how many? I, I mean, you're talking about oil, oh, gas, so on and so forth. But in terms of food, nutrients mm -hmm. for the sea life there, how long? Well, it's a good question. Uh, and it's probably a, a difficult to answer. There'll probably be a new equilibrium, um, you know, as the organisms adjust to this new food. <clears throat> I guess what I should say too is that the organisms had to come from somewhere, so they were probably there in 2009 or pr previously when we were there, just in very low abundances. Um, and then when you get this injection of food, their reproduction rates and everything can kind of uh, upshift. And so that's why there's suddenly now a lot more visible life on the seafloor. Um, but yeah, as you say, um, whether the food supply, if we get continually get lots of breakout, which may or may not be a natural phenomenon anyway, the period between 1999 and 2009 may have been slightly unusual, partly because there was these massive icebergs. Uh, you may have heard some of that be um, 15 or something like that. It was this massive iceberg the size of Rhode Island that grounded itself at the northern part of Ross Island and it really changed the circulation and blocked the, the removal of ice. So there's, it's very difficult to um, make um, grand pronouncements about, you know, we've seen a lot of breakout of sea ice. Is that because of climate change? Uh, not necessarily. Um, what we're trying to do is understand the relationship between sea ice and the organisms and productivity and things like that, so that whichever way things go with climate-related changes, we'll have a better understanding of, of what the trajectory of the organisms and the ecosystems is. Other questions? I think I'm the tall, loony guy there with that. I'm the eight, yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. So our team um, was nine, and we had three women and six men. Um, 
Two of the women were scientific divers. Actually, all three are scientific divers. Um, two of them were um, part of the rotational diving team that went underneath the ice. Um, everybody contributed amazingly. Um, we had two, three people from the University of Helsinki, so our Finnish contingent, um, two from the University of Auckland, and four from uh, my institution, NIWA, in New Zealand. Yeah. Back down to the ice. Um, so our project was a three-year project, and we had two seasons of field work. The, the largest season was last season, the five-and-a-half-week trip. Um, and then next year, there's no field work component. So now we're madly analyzing data and writing papers and, and that kind of thing. And that's the problem also, is that funding for Antarctic um, research is limited. And as academic researchers, um, we have to write grant funding applications, convince someone to get you to go down there. Antarctica, New Zealand, um, is um, they get government funding to provide the logistical support for science outfits. So when we write grant proposals, that's not even including the expense of the logistical costs that are enormous. And we couldn't do this without the support of, of Antarctica, New Zealand, um, and these other, and including um, the, the United States Antarctic program as well, who, who collaborate quite closely with the New Zealand program. <clears throat> Any other questions? How long can you stay under the ice? Um, so our scuba dive time, um, just like with normal scuba diving, um, you're limited by how long you can stay under, depending on what depth you go to. But practically speaking, because of the cold temperatures, we always limit our dives to 45 minutes or less. But that's still quite a long time underwater. Yeah. So you can get Especially pretty, when you it's get pretty cold. cold when you come up. <laughs> Uh, we just dive on normal um, compressed air. Um, so we use, um, because of the technical nature of diving underneath ice, we use a lot of um, specialized gear. So we use twin cylinders, so twin tanks on our back, with a, a separate independent regulator on each. Because one of the problems with cold water diving is that your regulator will freeze up and start to free flow. So it's not going to deny you air, but it will get rid of your, the air in your tank pretty quickly if you don't do something about it. So you switch to the, the other regulator and you shut down this one and then you go up. We do lots of other things too um, for safety sake. We have one over here. Yeah, can you talk about the training maybe you went through? You, um, either did you have to go through physical fitness training or some sort of regimen before going down? And then when you were there, you said you went through some safety training. Can you talk about what that was like and what, what exactly what it was? Sure. So anybody who goes down to the Arctic, Antarctic as a, a researcher has to um, complete an Antarctic medical examination. If you're a diver, you also have to ha have a current dive medical clearance to dive. Um, there's no real physical fitness um, regimen that you have to do, although it helps to be a fit person because it is very physical down there. And even just living in the cold like that, the cold um, really sucks the energy out of you. You have to eat a lot to keep your energy levels up. And it's so dry, you, leave a, you drink about four liters of water a day, probably. Um, in terms of training, we do Antarctic field training. So lots of just basic safety procedures for how to deal with the cold, um, how to avoid getting frost nip, frostbite, um, what to do um, in different types of situations. Um, fire is a real big problem, especially at Scott Base because it's so dry. It's, it's also staticky, so little sparks shoot out your fingers all the time and stuff like that. So 
Um, in terms of dive training, we do a specialized um, ice diving course. Um, it can either be run at a frozen lake in the middle of winter in, in, in New Zealand, or we can actually do it on site in the Antarctic. Um, it's basically just a shakedown, learning the gear um, and the different things you have to do, um, yeah, and, and lifeline signal. So in New Zealand program, we have a tether, so we we're always know how to get back to our hole. And in fact, we can talk to the surface using um, communicating um, via our, our, our line, our tether. So, yeah. Well, please join me in, in thanking Drew for a wonderful lecture. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right.